The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. <clears throat> I have to tell you how really happy I am to be here. And uh, so I thank you for coming, because without you I wouldn't be here. <laughs> um, so it's been a while, and uh, a lot has happened in my life, and probably in yours also. One of the things that uh, one of the things that's on my mind, and is the topic of of the talk this morning, is uh, what do we do when things don't get better? All of, us, all of us have moments, maybe a lot of them, maybe a few of them, where we wish things were different. We want things to be better. Sometimes it's simple. I want to not be sick anymore. As someone who's had a whole string of issues, <laughs> least of which you now is this cold that I have, I can tell you I've often thought, I just don't want to be sick anymore. <laughs> Maybe it's wishing for just a little more joy in life. Maybe it's looking for, why can't that person just show me a little kindness? Just a little kindness. It would make so much difference in my life. Sometimes it's more major. I don't think I can go on with this relationship if something doesn't change. How can I be with this person whom I love who is destroying their lives. There are all kinds of things that we wish were better. And sometimes they don't get better. You know? And we we sit there with comparing mind and we say, well, if I were a better person, this might have happened. Or we say, why does that person have a job? I'm better at what I do than they are. How come they've got that? What's going on with that? Or we say, how come they're so happy and I'm not happy? You know, I deserve to be happy. And we kind of get stuck in that trap of comparing ourselves to something else, some ideal that we have. Some idea we have about how things can be better. Perhaps we see, I've worked just as hard as that person. How come they're so prosperous and I'm really struggling? How come I'm really prosperous and they're really struggling? What's that about? How bad do I feel about that? It's not just ourselves that we want things to be better for. We want things to be better for other people, too. We want there not to be poverty. We want the people in our family to be whole. We want them not to have to worry about paying the electric bill. We want our friends not to be desperate because they've lost all their money and their past retirement, and what are they going to do now? We really want things to be better, sometimes for us, sometimes for other people. Sometimes we say, I know the answer. If they would just do this thing, If those people would just do that thing, it would be better. I know just what it's going to take. Not living their lives, it's really easy for us. Ever been there? I sure have. Where I've wished for people that I really care about. That they could be past whatever it is that's making them so miserable. And I could just see if they made this choice instead of that choice. Or maybe there's something I should have done. Maybe... Maybe if I had not sat on him when he was a kid, he wouldn't have grown up to be mean. You know, what do you know? There are all these ideas we have about how things might have been better. If we were better, if they were better, we just know we know what to do. Or we get attached to the outcome. You know, if I do this, then this is what's going to happen. And then it doesn't happen. And it's, it's not totally, you know, fantasy. We have some reason to believe something is going to happen when we 
make skillful actions. When I got up this morning, I was pretty sure I was going to be able to get here. You know, I was going to go get ready, get in my car, drive down here. I was pretty sure. But it didn't have to be that way. There are lots of ways that that might have fallen apart. But somehow, I was so sure that had I been interrupted for some reason, that would have felt like a betrayal to me. You know, we get really attached to the outcome of what we do, particularly if we're doing something kind. You know, um, uh, you say, well, I'm going to do this for this person. I see this person really needs something. You know, maybe it's money, maybe it's a hug, you know, something. I'm going to do this for this person. And it comes out of us just from a sense of generosity. And then we're met with hostility. Or it doesn't make them feel better at all. Or some gift we've given someone turns out to be a terrible mistake. And it has horrible consequences. And we're staring at it saying, how could that be? I had such good intentions. And then it's, you're just sitting there looking at a pile of rags. You know what? This just happens. And there's a whole lot of suffering around what we think should be happening, why we think things should be better, how we think things should be better. And when we get stuck in this place of, if I were better, this would, things would be better, which is kind of where we move. <laughs> if I were better, things would be better. Then we get stuck into sense of failure, embarrassment, fear, depression, anxiety. And all of this is happening because we want things to be better. Now, there is absolutely nothing wrong about wanting things to be better. We all want things to be better. And this is what keeps us moving through the world in a positive way. It's the outcome of generosity. It's the outcome of kindness. We want things to be better. But if we're getting stuck in a feeling of sadness and frustration, and we're really stuck in that space, then there's not much room for feeling positive about what we're doing. It doesn't leave much room for peace, does it? So, uh, last May... I went on a month-long retreat. I went to the Forest Refuge in Massachusetts, which was absolutely wonderful, wonderful, wonderful. And when I arrived there, uh, the first thing that happened is I got sick. <laughs> you know, and, you're, and it's, you're, it's silent. You can't speak to anybody. You don't really know what's wrong with you. <laughs> and it, it didn't have a structure. The Forest Refuge doesn't have a structure. So it's not like somebody's going to notice that you haven't been there for four sittings you know, you're really on your own. And I was getting uh, sort of overwhelmed with this feeling of wanting things to be better. And what was really true is that I'd arrived on retreat with uh, total emotional exhaustion because there were so, so many things in my life that I felt powerless to fix. People had died People were not doing well. People were suffering. And I felt like I should have been able to do something about that. One thing that happens when you do a a sustained meditation retreat is you can't get away from all those things that are pressing you. It's not really an escape, even if it feels like that for the first 30 seconds. Then whatever you've brought into that is right there present with you and it comes up. So I was feeling a, a, a lot of loss and a sense of failure around not being able to change the course of things in my life. Not so much for me personally, but for, for the people that I love. So Joseph Goldstein was one of the teachers for this, um, this month that I was there. And pretty much in my first interview with him, he said, okay, 
we've got to do something about this, and I have two messages for you. And the first message was, there is nothing, let's see, you're right. There is nothing that's not worth clinging to, not clinging to. There is nothing that is not worth not clinging to. Sometimes we kind of get stuck in this place where we think, I'll just let go. I, all I have to do is let go. And we're trying to let go of who we are or some big thing in our lives. I'm just going to let go of it. I'm just going to accept it the way it is. And his point was, you can let go. You can practice letting go of anything. It doesn't have to be the biggest thing in your life. Just let go of wanting the shoe to fit. Just let go of wanting there not to be noise. Just let go of wishing you didn't have to ever look at a rice cake again. Whatever it is. No, just let go anything. There is nothing that is not worth not clinging to. Now, why is this important? It's important because we can't let go unless we know what it feels like to let go. It's just too scary. But if you can let go, practice letting go of almost anything, that is creating freedom in your life. You know, we don't have to stare. Uh, I'm thinking now about the elephant in the room. So, a lot, of, a lot of times you'll hear people say, oh, you're just ignoring the elephant in the room. There's some big thing here, and you're, you're paying attention to all these other things. Sometimes that's very skillful because you're not going to push that elephant out of the room. I'm not saying ignore it. But maybe you can let go of wishing it wasn't there. Maybe you can let go of wishing things were better. Not all at once. I wish I hadn't forgotten my favorite pair of socks. Oh, I can let go of that. (laughs) I can let go of that. They're just socks. Did you feel any release with that? I did. Hey, that's pretty great, you know? Okay, no matter how small, letting go is letting go, and all of it has a value. The second suggestion he made was that I try equanimity practice. So how many of you are familiar with equanimity practice? Oh, good. (laughs) How about meta practice? Are you familiar with meta practice? Yeah, it's like that. It's really like that. So now I'm familiar with meta. Uh, equanimity practice, but I'd never actually done it. So, like metta, it is a concentration practice. It's one of the Brahma Viharas. There are four Brahma Viharas. Compassion, loving kindness, sympathetic joy, and equanimity. And each of them has a practice, like metta practice, where you can just say some phrases and repeat the phrases, and you start with yourself, and then you move on to other people. And the original impetus behind what he suggested for me was uh, that I could let go of wanting things to be better for other people, these people who were screwing up in their lives. But I should start with equanimity for me. All right, so, so the important thing to do is keep track of, to be mindful when you're doing this process. So... It's not totally mindless repeating of phrases. It's important to know how you really feel, you know, what's going on with you. So, you know, do you envy Jane's new car? Well, yeah, I do. Just a little, I envy Jane's new car. Okay, know that. Let that be okay, that you know that. Or do you avoid someone begging on the street? Yeah, you know, there's some discomfort there. Or, no, I don't, but, but I get by as fast as I can. Or Notice what the feelings are that you have when you're doing the practice. So whatever it is that comes out, what do you feel like? Are you angry or fearsome or guilty, scared? What's the feeling that comes up? All right. These are all 
common reactions, but they're, they're reactions, right? They're just reactions. And what we're dealing with is mental tendencies. So when you do metapractice, the purpose of metapractice is really to soften your heart, to allow loving kindness to bloom in your heart. You do it for yourself, you do it for others, but it's really to allow it to bloom in your heart. Equanimity practice is like that. The reason for doing equanimity practice is so you know what it feels like to be equanimous. That's not as obvious as it sounds. Doing this practice surprised me. And it's not the first time I've done this practice. But it surprised me. So that's what I want you to be open to is the possibility of surprise. Suffering comes out of some kind of imbalance, comes out of clinging to something that we wish was different. Even when we're wishing for something to be better, we're clinging to that. We're clinging to that outcome, and suffering arises. So we're not balanced when that's true. Now, one thing I want to make clear is that equanimous doesn't mean that you don't care about whatever it is that you're caring about. Nor does it, it, so it isn't about indifference, and it isn't about doubt. It isn't that you're wrong for wanting things to be better. All right? Equanimity is the ability to be in front of something that you don't want to be in front of. It's the capacity to be with pain, your, your own or others. It's the capacity to be present for joy, even if that's scary to you. So equanimity is about the ability to stand in place and be present for what arises. So one way that this, the Buddha talked about this, he was talking about, excuse me, he was talking about right speech. And he said, bhikkhus, there are five courses of speech that others may use when they address you. Timely or untimely, true or untrue, gentle or harsh, connected with good or with harm, with loving kindness or hate. Train thus. Your mind will remain unaffected. Speak no unskillful words. Abide compassionate for their welfare with a mind of loving kindness. No matter what you hear, you meet it with a sense of compassion and and loving-kindness. You don't take the words to mean something about you. You hear the words. You see the person. You meet what is there. Now you imagine, I imagine, um, my brother with whom I was fighting. A year ago we had a terrible fight. And it was a total lack of communication. And there was no way we were going to get past that. So I left. Well, about a little less than a month ago, my brother was in an automobile accident. And he was very fortunate to walk away from the accident. My other brother, who was riding with him, did not. I went to Phoenix to see my family, in one case to attend the memorial, the other case to see my brother and say, I love you. And I am very grateful that I had the opportunity to do that. Really grateful that I had the opportunity to do that. What stands between us, the words between us, are unresolved. 
what we fought about is totally unresolved. But to be present for him and say, I love you, was so important to me, I just simply cannot tell you how grateful I am for that. That is part of showing up and being present for what's true. Because while what we were fighting about was true, the fact that we love each other is also true. And by focusing on that, on being present for that, we were able to look at each other and see each other as we've known each other for all of my life. This is a really great blessing. And how did I know it was okay? Because when I did equanimity practice on my retreat, I learned what equanimity felt like. So when I stood in front of my brother and said, I love you, I was able to do that and hold all of it there together and know that it felt right, that I didn't have to resolve everything, that everything didn't have to be better for me to not fight with my brother. And it was the experience of understanding what equanimity really feels like that took me through that time, which was a very emotional time. It's, you know, when when things are emotional, it's really easy to get off balance. That's how I know what it really is, is being present for that and, and feeling that sense of this is how it is was a blessing. It was a blessing. So how can I be present for something? How can I develop this state of non-reactivity? What we want is not to be pushed around by success and failure, praise and blame, ill repute and fame, pain and pleasure. These are the things that knock us off These are the things that we want to be present for. And understand that success and failure, praise and blame, ill repute and fame, pain and pleasure, are actually not about us. Their meaning is external to us. Equanimity is the capacity to be present for something that is under is uncomfortable that is not under our control. You can be equanimous and still have a broken heart. It isn't about indifference. Okay. So we take a place we touch the ground, and we stay in the room. Another thing the Buddha said is, what a person considers and reflects upon for a long time, to that his mind will bend and incline. This is why we practice. What a person considers and reflects upon for a long time, to that his mind will bend and incline. So, what I'm going to share with you is the phrases that I used for my equanimity practice, and maybe we can talk about them and how they might relate to you. So, uh, so this is it. I am the owner of my own karma. My happiness or unhappiness depends on my own intentions and actions and not the wishes of others. No matter how I might wish things to be otherwise, they are as they are. May I see things just as they are. May I see the arising and passing away of all things with equanimity and balance. Let me repeat that. I am owner of my own karma. My happiness or suffering depends on my own Intentions and actions, not on the wishes of others. No matter how I might wish things to be otherwise, they are as they are. 
May I see things just as they are. May I see things arising and passing away with equanimity and balance. Now, Joseph didn't tell me what words to use. I went back to my room and I, I put these together myself. The last, uh, may I see things arising and passing away with equanimity and balance, is from Jack Cornfield. That's something he uses. When I started, when I started this practice, it seemed, oh, you know, like a thought pattern. It seemed conceptual. It was very hard to relate to it in the beginning. It seemed uh, false. You know, it just seemed kind of contrived. It seemed contrived. And uh, in particular, the first phrase that I chose, I am owner of my own karma, I was having a lot of tri- trouble relating to it, you know, because it's such a big idea, and what do I really think about karma? And my mind was moving everywhere. So, so I introduced something at the beginning, which I didn't repeat over and over. So the way I did this practice is I would do it for 15 minutes when I first sat down to sit, and I would do it through most of my walking meditation. So that's how I used it. I would just repeat the phrases. And so at the very beginning, I added the first two chapters of the Dhammapada, because that allowed me to enter into that I am owner of my own karma. So I'm going to repeat that for you. All experiences preceded by mind, led by mind, made by mind, speak or act with a corrupted mind, and suffering follows as the wagon wheel follows the hoof of the ox. All experience is preceded by mind, led by mind, made by mind, speak or act with a peaceful mind, and happiness follows like a never-departing shadow. From there, it was easy for me to see what I'm holding in my mind colors whether I am suffering or whether happiness is there. If I have a corrupted mind, a mind with ill will, and focus on on resentment, then suffering is going to follow. If I have a mind that is peaceful, that is full of loving kindness, happiness will follow. In this sense, It's very easy to get into that phrase, for me, of I am owner of my own karma. Karma being about intentions and actions. So so I would say that, and then I would repeat the phrases. Despite the fact that in the beginning it felt like it was contrived, I have to tell you there was a major shift for me from doing this practice. A major shift. I never got to doing equanimity practice, say, for my family and friends, because it was so important to do it for myself. Once I realized that I was creating my own unhappiness, that was stunning. You know, these are things we know. These are things we get in our heads. But when we feel them down in our bodies, whoa, whoa. I see where that's coming from. Everything changes. My happiness is dependent on my own intentions and actions. Nothing else. It's not what's happening out there. So what came up for me while I was doing this practice was noticing how my focus on outcome was coloring my reactions. I came to see that, that I was unhappy for my family and I wanted to help them. And I wanted to help them by making them different than they are. Whoops. I want them to be different. I want them to make different choices. I want all this stuff out external to myself, which I have no control over and no right to ask. 
I can support them, but I cannot make them do anything. So my, my attention on the outcome was creating sadness and unhappiness in my life. How much of my pain was centered on things over which I had no control? Quite a bit. <laughs> Quite a bit. Somehow we think we're super people. We have control over everything that happens. If I just do this, then this will happen. And then we're astounded and disappointed when it doesn't happen that way. This wanting them to change, it's wanting things to be different than they are. And my clinging to wanting things to be different than they are was causing me suffering. My desires, however generous or positive, were not consistent with how things are, with reality on the ground. When things had ended, as in death, had I actually let go of them? Had I actually let go? So I came in with three understandings, three principal understandings. My happiness depends on my own mind, my intentions and actions, my own. The importance of seeing things as they are. And uh, I'm coming back next week and we'll talk more about that, the importance of seeing things as they are and how we do that. And third, freedom is found in letting go. The goal is found in release from clinging. There is nothing that is not worth not clinging to. It was a return to the first instruction. So what I'd like to do is take just a few minutes and do this practice with you. So here's how we're going to do it. uh, just, just as we do meta practice, I'll ask you to close your eyes and just kind of repeat the phrases after me in your mind. And let's see what happens. All experience is preceded by mind, led by mind, made by mind. Speak or act with a corrupted mind and suffering follows as the wagon wheel follows the hoof of the ox. All experience is preceded by mind, led by mind, made by mind. Speak or act with a peaceful mind, and happiness follows like a never-departing shadow. I am the owner of my own karma. My happiness or unhappiness depends on my own intentions and actions and not others' wishes. No matter how I might wish things to be otherwise, things are as they are. May I see things just as they are. May I see things arising and passing away with equanimity and balance. I am the owner of my own karma. My happiness or unhappiness depends on my own intentions and actions and not others' wishes for me.
no matter how I might wish things to be otherwise, things are as they are. May I see things just as they are. May I see things arising and passing away with equanimity and balance. I am the owner of my own karma. My happiness or unhappiness depends on my own intentions and actions and not others' wishes for me. No matter how I might wish things to be otherwise, things are as they are. May I see things just as they are. May I see things arising and passing away with equanimity and balance. So, um, you know, I did this practice for a month. I had a lot of time for things to sink in and for them to take root in my heart and move me in different ways and to see different things. But I actually had quite a shift after about a week. (laughs) So... So I would encourage you to try it. I read a poem yesterday by uh, Jane Hirschfeld, and I unfortunately didn't bring the poem, but it was very interesting. In the poem, she said, I still do it, I still wash my face with cold water. Not because I'm trying to sacrifice, not because I'm trying to remember, but because... I want to continue the experience of accepting what I don't want. I thought that was really interesting. A practice of seeing what I don't want to be true and saying, yep, that's the way it is. There is freedom there. There is freedom there. It isn't about indifference. I don't think Jane ever likes washing her face with cold water. But she's really interested in what happens when she does. So, those are most of my thoughts for this morning. I'm wondering if you have any comments, if the, if the practice brought up anything for you. The idea of the practice brings up anything for you? If you have any comments about that, I'd love to hear them.
doesn't sound like it's on. Is the green light on? Uh What do we think? Maybe we'll just do... Yeah, it might be a battery problem. Okay. No, it's not working. Uh Okay, well, let's just... I'll just repeat the question or comment. We've got one. Okay, here we go. (laughs) Interesting that uh, I was... Was it last couple of weeks, Andrea... Indra Fell has been doing loving kindness uh-huh. in Meta. So, okay, started that. I got into that, and now we got another one. Yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, you know, five minutes is five minutes, but I, I noticed a little bit more stillness, a little bit more. If I had to throw a word in, I'd say a little more Zen-like. Kind of something. Maybe there was a little bit of a touch of something, kind of just still. When when I did that, um, uh, I could see my mind saying, "Okay, it just started the loving kindness thing. Now we got this other one, and like, okay, what's going to be next week? <laughs> God, I'm trying to get us enlightened in three weeks or whatever. <laughs> but it's just what it is is that's the whole point, kind of. Um, you know, I, it's." It's something I might consider more. It's funny, I was just starting to... I've been going through a very difficult time in some, one part of my life in particular, a big part, and other parts of my life are going great. It's kind of a mixed bag. And I was just starting to think about using this Thich Nhat Hanh practice where it's kind of not quite like this, but he says, it's breathing in, I calm my body and mind, breathing out, I smile, dwelling in the present moment. I know this is a wonderful moment. It's kind of like that. It's like just being in the moment and accepting what is. And so my mind was already starting to move in that direction. And then this comes up. It's kind of a whole, you know, addition. But I think it's in a similar category somewhat, accepting what is. Yeah, I'll probably follow up in some way. I, I'm going to definitely do the, the meta practice. That I need. I, I definitely want to want that. But this, this might be a nice addition. Good. So. Good. You know, it is, it is very similar to... It, it is about accepting what arises in the moment. It's being present for what arises in the moment. And all of the adjustments that we're trying to make to the moment is what gives rise to suffering. You know, it could just be a little better or... You know, I could be a little better. Or, but that just wholly accepting the moment as it is, that's a real blessing. And I think there is stillness there. I like that. I like that choice of words. One more thing I want to say, and it's just kind of a little gimmicky or techniquey, but I'll, I'll mention it anyway. I was in a personal growth workshop, not Buddhist, and it was about loving yourself. And we had a mirror exercise where you had where you had um, certain things to say, kind of meta-type stuff, in a mirror. Mm-hmm. And so I was mentioned to Andrea, and I started doing meta with a mirror, looking at myself and saying, you know, I kind of have, may I be happy, may I be healthy, may I be at ease, may I be free of suffering, and saying it, you know, periodically with a mirror. might be interesting to try this in a mirror and just see what it does. I don't know if it's going to do anything, but to actually look at yourself and, oh, Interesting. That's, that's good. It really is about looking at yourself. You really have to see, oh, it, you know, the, the whole idea of my happiness depends on my intentions and actions requires you to really know what you're doing, to see what you're doing, to be present for what you're doing, and not to just be reactionary, but to actually know, oh, this is how I'm feeling. This is how I'm reacting. This is what my pattern of reaction is. Yeah, that, that is it. Yeah. Anybody else? Up here. Hi. Um, 
thank you for your your talk. Um, I too just uh, I came back from my first uh, week long retreat in my life, and um, we also we did a lot of meta practice, um, but not equanimity. Um, I guess one thing that I'm learning is just I guess saying things to yourself or you know whether it's meta practice or equanimity practice when I first heard about sort of the concept of just saying over and over may I be happy may I be safe and may I be healthy and and whatnot or you know may I accept things the way they are um, it's kind of like well I'm just saying it but um, I guess kind of like what the Buddha said, whatever your mind fixes on, then um, um, it goes towards that direction. So I guess I'm learning that there, there's, uh, it's, you're not just saying it, but it, it's hopefully affecting your, your mind. I don't, I don't know if, I guess I had some doubt about if it really would change anything. Um, just a comment, thought thing. Yeah. You know, when I first started meditating, what I did was metta. And for three months, I did metta. Nothing else. One hour in the morning and one hour at night. It took me three months to finally hear it. To finally feel it in my heart. And to have my heart break open. And, and truly experience compassion for myself. Three months it took me. It was quite a lot of meditating, actually to get it, you know. I mean, we repeat these phrases, we repeat these phrases, we repeat these phrases, and you're right, it, it has, it's, there's a certain amount of conditioning, but what eventually happens is you hear yourself, and you say, oh, oh, I get it. It doesn't mean that you own it, by the way, <laughs> but getting it is the first step, right? So, This is a practice that's right now very important for me, the, the, the equanimity practice. Even though the really big movement has already occurred, I don't know what remains out there for me to see. And meta practice has always been part of my life, ever since I started meditating, because it is a way of softening my heart. When I walk into a room and I'm in conflict with someone, probably equanimity practice isn't going to work fast enough for me. <laughs> but meta practice will soften my heart and create space. Leaving space for equanimity to arise. And then I'll know that feeling because now I know what equanimity feels like. So they really are practices that work together, and I've, I've never used them together, I have to tell you. I've never used them together. But now I understand how they fit. Now I see what this means. So it was, it was uh, difficult for me to go to my family uh, after the death of my brother. And I had to enter this sphere in a way that was different than I had before. And, uh, and I did. And that was surprising to me. What I discovered from doing this practice was surprising to me and continues to surprise me. So... Um, so I, is there, does anybody have anything else? I have one more little story. One more reaction? Okay. So one of the symbols that's very common in Buddhism is the symbol of the lotus flower. And it's, it's often used when people talk about enlightenment. Uh, it's it's uh, and purity of the mind. So the lotus, as you may know, grows out of the mud at the bottom of a pond and comes up through the water 
and the flowers, the, the leaves come up on top of the water and the flowers bloom from there. But it is still stuck in the mud. So as the, the, so the, the symbolism from a Buddhist point of view is that as the lotus grows out of the still water and mud of the pond, which is samsara, there is the cycle of rebirth in the moment, it leaves the mud, worldly existence, behind to emerge straight toward the sky, appear clean on the surface. Purity is there and blossoms into the beautiful flower of enlightenment. So it turns out that there's a good biological reason why they chose this symbol. The lotus leaves, there was a guy, what was his name? Um, German botanist named Barthold, in 1987, used electron microscope. I'm not going to say that word today. I don't know why. Okay, so he used a microscope, and he looked at the surfaces of the leaves, and he discovered that the lotus leaves has a microstructure and a nanostructure that's waxy, and it has certain angles so that the water gathers on those angles, and the surface tension of the water causes it to bead up, and then the bead rolls down the edge of the leaf, pulling the dirt with it. So that's what's happening. So... There's a, it, it's still rooted in the mud, but because of the shape of those leaves, the structure that has been impressed on those leaves, the water beads up, rolls away, taking the dirt with it. I think this is a good image of how equanimity works. Equanimity is not about things being as we want them to be. But by allowing the texture of our lives, seeing the texture of our lives, to be just as it is, those things that arise around us can ball up in their nature and roll away without changing the shiny purity of the leaf. And that's true for us. As we become more present with what's true, and we allow it to be true, does not mean we're indifferent, that we don't struggle, that our hearts aren't broken. It just means we allow it to be true. Then peace follows. May you all know the peace of allowing what is true to be true. May all of your good intentions, your good wishes, your hopes for things being better be realized. And when they are less than what you had hoped for, may you be able to accept it with ease. Blessings. Thank you.